Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choice. Chris, how are you in this year of our Lord 2023? I'm doing good, John. We are uh, bringing some afternoon vibes for once because we're doing this in the middle of the day as opposed to late at night. Uh, so I'm awake. I feel good. The year hasn't completely suffocated me yet. So, uh, can't complain at this point. How about yourself? <laughs> if we're using metaphors to describe the beginning of my year, I would say that I have been released from the burden of employment. Uh, and so, you know. I, Not quite a metaphor is more of a, <laughs> a newsflash. Yeah. <laughs> I am currently waiting to hear back on a uh, job interview, though. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, I should be back up and running shortly. But yes, that is... That's been sort of the the flavor of my life. Uh, the last little bit has been uh, job instability. Yay! <laughs> well, at least now on uh, future job hunts and resumes, you can put down uh, that you have experienced uh, some of the greatest films that the world has to offer. Because the topic that we're doing today, uh, because the news has been so big about it the last couple of weeks, is we are going to take a look at a couple of films from the Sight and Sound poll that just got released about a month ago. Uh, every year, every 10 years, I, I, I should say, uh, BFI, the British Film Institute, uh, does a poll through a bunch of critics and directors to chart the 100 greatest films of all time. And that just came out and John, wow, people got a little, uh, got a little up in arms about it because it is a vastly different list than it has been in decades past. When, you, when you're talking about, you know, best of less people, I, my, my, my thought has always been that for, for the person writing the lists, it's about getting your feelings out there, put it in just the value of being able to express sort of where you're at as far as preferences, whether it's uh, movies of the year, albums of the year, albums of all time, all that stuff. Uh, and for people reading the lists, it's helpful to, it's helpful to, for, you know, finding new movies that you may have missed. I mean, certainly yep. the movies that we're going to talk about today, um, someone's obviously you know hot and bothered to uh to to put them on their list but i certainly uh there was a lot of new stuff for me and instead of there was there was exactly one film that was not on the list that i got mildly annoyed about enough to buy the bergman box set from criterion and that was seven seal I was like, it's weird that it's not on there. Anyways, I'm going to go buy it. Like, that was my reaction. I didn't post an angry screed on Twitter. I didn't uh, uh, <sighs> get up in my feelings about anything. I was just like, oh, right. That movie's really good. And it should have been on the list. And then I bought it. Other than that, it's it's <laughs> here's a whole bunch of new movies that I get to watch and enjoy for the first time. So, like, no complaints. How, how about you? How does uh, how, how do you take in the uh, the new 2022 list? A lot like you said. Um, I was not annoyed at any omissions. I was not annoyed at any um, new entrance. Um, I think it's an interesting thing. I did a little bit of research as to years past. I, I, I bought the issue um, and they, they go into some detail about kind of how things have changed over the years. And the thing that really struck me and I think is a net positive overall for things like this is um, the level of diversity and inclusion had, like exponentially increased. Um, so in 2002, there were 149 critics that were invited to participate in the poll. And in 2002, the poll looked roughly, there's always some movement and, and some new things and some omissions, but one could argue that the, that the poll results in 2002 were roughly similar to what they were in 92, 82, 72, 62, and 52 when the poll originated. In 2012, they went from 149 um, I think to like 800 critics. So just think about like, like an eightfold expansion of critics. And then that's where we started to see like changes for the first time in like 50 years. Citizen Kane was not the number one film of all time. It was Vertigo. Uh, in 2022, they expanded from over 800 to over 1600. So they again doubled the amount of critics, which if I, if I think about it is, really is nothing but a good thing. For the first time, we're seeing a lot more modern films. We're seeing a lot more films from um, 
female directors. We're seeing a lot more films from other countries, from countries that have often been neglected. When you think about a canon of uh, the greatest films of all time. I agree with you. It can only be, uh, it can only be a, a positive. I would never be so presumptuous to, uh, uh, to assume that we'll be invited at some point to submit our own list. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and- to be clear, we're not <laughs> we're not counted among the 1600 film critics who participated. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, but uh, by the time this goes up, uh, if you go to cinemaduel.com, uh, you should uh, be seeing uh, a trio of uh, posts from myself, from Chris, and from Dan, uh, th- where we sort of pretend as if we had been invited to submit our lists and uh, talk a little bit about what our ballots would be for uh, the year 2022 as far as greatest films of all time. With that being said, uh, we're going to start with uh, the one that everyone's talking about, uh, the new number one greatest film of all time uh, as polled by the British Film Institute and in the latest edition of the Sight and Sound poll. Let's talk about Jean Dillman, 23 Q de Commerce, 10 80 Brussels. All right, so this is a 1975 film uh, by the Belgian director Chantal Ackerman. Uh, done when she was only 25 years old. Uh, this is, I, I, I want to say a day in the life, but it's actually very specifically three days in the life of a, um, woman named Jean Delman. Uh, the title refers to where she lives. And it basically looks at the minutiae of her life, um, over the span of these three days leading up to a very specific event. Uh, we'll talk more in details about that event when we kind of go through the story and we go through kind of the, 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 if the, you want to call it spoilers, but the spoiler section of the film. Um, but this is a huge kind of progenitor of, I guess, what's called the slow film movement. Uh, this is a three and a half hour picture. Um, and the, the thing that I really want to say about it without getting too heavy into the plot, I, I think it's enough to say, um, it looks at the day to day moments of this woman and her interactions with a variety of men, um, it, over the course of these three days. The thing that I really wanted to say about it though is watching it brought to mind, um, the adage by Roger Ebert that a film is not what it's about. It's how it goes about it. And the plot and the story mechanics of this film may be very simple, but the way that this film goes about telling this particular story, the how of Jean Dillman, um, is galvanizing to me. Um, never had I seen, and this is where I want to kind of jump off as a starting point in a question to you, John. I don't think that I have seen a better film show the process of time than I have in this film. Um, I think this film, I, I think it's an incredible testament to how you can use film to show concepts like that, how you can use film to show kind of habits and set expectations and set rules and guidelines and then gradually disintegrate them, which this film kind of brilliantly does over the course of its three and a half hour runtime. Thrown it to you, like, obviously, what were your takeaways to the film? And we, we can talk about specifics after, but specifically the concept of time, um, how time is used, how the movie kind of runs from a timeline perspective, from a, from a running time perspective. How did time impact you watching this film? Um, the um, Specifically on the time question, it brought to mind two, uh, this movie brought to mind two incredibly uh disparate uh things for me uh one was uh our conversation and the films around uh tarkovsky's movies i remember we talked about tarkovsky there was a lot of concept of his movies existing at a pace that um a drawn out pace that sort of allowed you to sort of put a lot of yourself uh into the movie um or a lot of allowed you to project a lot of stuff into it um and so Tarkovsky was sort of my first uh, bouncing off point. And weirdly, the second one for me was the uh, 
the the reality show uh terrace house uh that uh that i used to watch back in the day on netflix um the reason why i bring it up here is because uh in that show the way that in contrast to other shows where they would try and try and gin up drama by like faking rivalries and being trash people to each other all the time these were just kind gentle people living together as roommates and so you watched a lot of the domestic life of cleaning dishes and preparing meals and when they and with a pace of uh living and existence that was like a lot more dialed down it it brought it's it sort of had that similar way of bringing you into the experience and uh such that the slightest disturbances to that uh to, to that ecosystem that ex- that existed uh suddenly felt more dramatic so you know in this movie at one point she drops a fork and dropping a fork is a devastating moment in this film when you're so used to every like the the how the the how perfect everything or how sort of regular and consistent everything is the you get so used to the rhythms of what's happening in in you know in terrace house or in 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 john in john Mielman that uh at a certain point even just the slightest deviance uh deviance from that pattern is is noticeable and it's and it's shocking in ways that you know you wouldn't otherwise give a second thought to yeah, I I think that's very much the point of Ackerman's structure of the film, right? We we spend probably a good um hour hour 15 just understanding the components that make up Dillman's day, right? She is a mother, she has a uh, university age son that she takes care of and kind of um Weirdly, I guess to my 2022 eyes, like mothers him to the point of like, he seems completely helpless without her. Um, she has a number of errands. She has a number of like rituals that she performs, uh, in the service of keeping a house in order, keeping her son in order. One of those things that she does and it kind of acts as the cut point for each day. Um, she also works as a prostitute. So she takes in lovers every single day and that kind of, um, helps pay for the things that she needs to do because you find out earlier in the first day that uh, she's a widow. Her, her husband had, had died years before she reads a letter to her son uh, from her sister uh, from Canada uh, talking about, Oh, you know, I, I wish you could come here. You should really find someone, you know, you should do this. You should do that. Um, it's an interesting look and those, the way that I ha- having never seen the reality program, um, that you're talking about, the, the way that Ackerman kind of beautifully sets the camera never moves. It's always stationary. Um, it's always focused. It never really cuts until it has to. Um, and to me, it was kind of wondrous to see the lack of breaking away because it does a couple of things. I think it does get you into the mindset and it does get you prepared for the eventual kind of breaking of those rituals and the, the, the breaking of that cadence when it gets to the next day. And then finally the third day, one of the things that I think those really long static shots also do is it kind of, it kind of lulls you into a false sense of security and you do start to wander and you stop looking at the action and maybe you start to focus on, maybe you focus on something in your room for a second. Then you come back to the film and you start to look at different things in the framing. I, I, I think one of the great things about this film as well is the color schemes, the way that Chantal Ackerman frames every shot, the kitchen in particular. So no surprise, John, I, I absolutely loved this movie. I, I, it, it took me in a way that I did not expect this film to take me, uh, to the point where I told you this morning, like for a three and a half hour film, I watched the second half again this morning, just because that first half, it had been so ingrained in me that I loved kind of now knowing what was going to happen, really start to, rewatch and see all of those little breakdowns. Um, the camera cuts more often as it gets to the second day and the third day, different angles than you had seen before start to kind of creep in to, um, to the shots where you would normally just see the kitchen from the side. Um, or you would see it with her back to you as she's washing the dishes. Now we see when she eats her lunch and this 
crazy devil baby she has to watch for like seemingly like seven <laughs> minutes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like on that third day, the camera suddenly switches and it, she has this situation where she tries to drink a cup of coffee and it's disgusting. And she tries everything under the sun to change the cup of coffee. She checks the milk. Nope, the milk's fine. Taste the coffee. Nope, the coffee's fine. Puts it together. Tastes disgusting. Puts some sugar in. Tastes disgusting. It grinds new coffee beans. Nothing works. And the camera switches to this kind of face front real close, like sitting across from her at the table where it never did that before. It was always removed. Um, the coffee I sequence love, was, uh, it's, was, it's one of my favorite haunting. sequences. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I was like this, <laughs> I, I am watching someone having a breakdown right now. It, it was, it was, I was far more affected than I expected to be in that moment. And then you get to the end, uh, where this big event happens and that is filmed like a, it's filmed like a Hitchcockian suspense. Once you see, like, you can kind of telegraph what's going to happen. Um, and you see, like, uh, will I, no better time to get into spoiler territory, but you see that she, the way the scissors are framed when she puts the scissors down to go leave the room to go, you know, invite the third John in and, and stuff like that. And, and it's just, it, it's fantastic. I, I am, I am still over the moon for this movie. <laughs> My experience was watching it in one sitting because again no job wow. uh being completely immersed in it for the whole time when the movie when the movie wrapped up like i had mentioned to you beforehand like not really putting any thoughts on letterbox just sort of logging it as watched as having watched it it was mostly just because like m- this one more than our next movie I, I i found myself thinking about a lot um in in the days since then um and if we and I think this is probably the other reason I think a lot of Tarkovsky is because it almost exists as a piece of art that you would go to a museum and sit and just sort of sit there and sort of let experience it sort of like you, you it's not something that you just sort of go and you look at and then you move on. Like it's something that you kind of have to sit with for a while and just sort of like yeah. let it ping pong back and forth. There are, a lot of different ways that you can attack this. And the <laughs> film doesn't really force you to pick one. Like this is very much about the role of a, a woman and how women are perceived and, and, and the, the, what word am I looking for? The kind of um, subsuming your own impulses and your own drive because you are perceived as being of service to others, whether it's to the John, whether it's to your son, right? The the excursions outside are just to get the things that she needs to be able to continue servicing her son and to keeping the house in such a way that, you know, she, she can continue to keep this pattern going. Um, so that sense of being stuck I, I find kind of stays with her, um, even when she's outside. And I, as much as the breakdowns happen in the house, like there's the constant, she is very clear to like leave her room, turn the light off, right? Cause you have to save electricity. Like there's all these little moments that show that this is not a woman of means, but it's a woman who wants to keep up the appearance of means. So they do things like they make sure to turn the lights off. So you don't have the electricity running. So I love like, in the house, you have a lot of those moments of she forgets. She turns the light on. She turns the light off. She forgets to put the heater on for her son when her son goes to bed. She forgets to do all these things. But then when she goes outside, especially on that last day, everything breaks down. And it 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 really brought home for me, like, who's not had that day where you don't realize the time, so you go to rush out. You get there too soon, and the one building's not open, so you got to wait for that building to get open. Then you have to wait for the other person to go. Then you want to go back to your restaurant, sit in your, so- in your spot that's usually – always empty, but because of your timing not being right now, another person's there and you got to go and you got to sit over there and you have all these other issues. It's so frustrating. And all those little moments outside add up. And there's a key moment there. I don't know what she's doing. I don't know if she was getting like coins for the laundry or getting a ticket or something, but she's at this red machine. I don't know if you know what that was, John. And she's trying to get something and a bunch of men walk by and laugh at her because the thing is empty. Like, She's doing nothing wrong and just a bunch of nameless goons just kind of walk by and mock her because the thing that she wants isn't available, which is something to talk about when we get to the end. The, you know, this one small scene being, um, being a summary of the entire film. This is a woman who has subsumed everything that she wants. And now in these little ways, she's trying to get something that she wants and it's just not working for her. 
<laughs> you know, uh, that doesn't work. She, she, and, and then when it eventually gets to the end, we can talk about how that may play into the film. But, um, that concept of being stuck, I think is an important one. Well, and it's, um, I mean, we, we don't need to dwell on this too long, but like, <laughs> I'm a philosophy minor that I, I can't help but go to stuff like Simone de Beauvoir and like second wave feminism, where they talk about, you know, how men get to transcend and go out and do glorious, wonderful discoveries and make things and adventures. And the, the women are stuck in more domestic subservient roles in the house. And I think that this obviously exists in sort of conversation with that. Uh, and so the hundred percent, you could hundred percent talk about her being like, stuck in 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 that sort of way um i did do a little bit of like uh criterion does have a few uh behind the scenes uh supplemental materials uh on this uh so i i, I did a bit of watching that because i wanted to get a sense of like what uh what chantal ackerman had to say about it and like her there was an interview where she talked or there was a tv appearance where she talked about her inspiration for making this film was the 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 women that she grew up doing these kinds of ritualistic patterns um in in her life and wanted to make a movie about it because that's not something that had been seen and so like from from that basic vantage point you could see well obviously this is you know how this ties into you know especially specifically like second wave feminist stuff but the uh but the way that she framed it and this we could probably use this to transition to talk about the ending is that the the she understood and we can talk about whether you know the director's intention versus you know uh us reading it against the author's intention but she talked about how the rituals give her a sense of peace and how the ending is about her uh like the, the 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 wheels start to fall off obviously in the second half of the movie and that the conclusion is in fact her reclaiming her peace and basically sort of saying no 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 i want it's not so much a rejection of the position that she's been put into it's more that she is getting rid of the things that uh interrupt her uh that interrupt sort of her zen that she has from all these like little things um and specifically it was the the sex work that actually uh was the thing that was disruptive to her um we can use that as we talk about the end, which I thought was interesting because yeah. I was like, oh, what is is the intention here that the pattern with the, the rituals that she's in is a good thing and she wants to uphold it. Uh, and, you know, needless, uh, the, you know, the, some of the details get in the way of it for her. Maybe you and I can have a back and forth and try to figure this out. So what happens at the end is uh, the third uh, John comes um, and this time you see the act. Um and we we will make short but little mention of the fact that this guy just looks like he's laying there either dead or asleep on top of her. I absolutely I thought that man was dead. I was like, <laughs> he, he does he is not moving. He is he's not doing the thing that I would imagine he should be doing to elicit the response in her that I am seeing her have. Because the way the movie ends is um uh apparently they're making love, although again Really weird. That guy does not seem to be moving at all, but she has an orgasm. Um, and it seems like she's kind of fighting it. She's fighting that feeling. She's trying to push him off again. He seems dead. So he's not going anywhere. Um, and she has an orgasm and then, um, it cuts to him just kind of laying on the bed and he's just kind of full of himself, just laying there and she's slowly getting dressed. Um, and then in this kind of beautiful tense moment, um, she walks off camera, uh, takes the pair of scissors that she had left there earlier, calmly walks up to him, stabs him in the neck. Uh, and then it cuts and she sits down at the dining room table where she's always been for, I think, um, I had read a couple of the essays as well. I didn't time it, but I think she just sits there in quiet, calm contemplation. Like you said, she's regained her peace for about seven minutes and then it just cuts to the credits. Um, it's, uh, God damn, it's an ending, man. Yeah, it's it's it sure definitely is. an ending. Um, and the way that I kind of looked at it as I was seeing this whole thing and kind of taking on the theme of whether she enjoyed it or not. Look, it, I, I don't think anyone can argue there is comfort in repetition because you don't have to think you can just act and you don't have to react. And the second that we have to react to something, now I have to put 
thought and context into the thing, right? So there is a comfort and a soothability in just letting the machine run, right? Do the thing and that does that thing and then that does that thing and that causes that thing to happen. And I never have to worry about it. That's how assembly lines work. You just do the thing and it keeps going. The second that you are confronted with a change or a breakdown, now you have to think and now you have to confront things that maybe you are not ready to confront. So I, here's my interpretation of what happened. Um, this was all kind of brought about after the second John, where maybe the same thing happened. I think, because, I think you're right about that. Yeah. Cause there's a, when the first John leaves, like she's completely well kept. He's very nice. They shake hands and he's like, okay, I'll, I'll see you next week. The second time it happens, she is like completely disheveled. And this is a woman who we've seen from the first hour, 15 minutes of her rituals, prides herself on keeping everything tightly in place. But something happened in that bedroom that caused her to be slightly disheveled. And the guy just looks at her and says, see you next week. And he goes, there's, there's no warmth at all. It just happens. Um, so thus starts the breakdown. And now on the third time it happens, Maybe she didn't completely have an orgasm the second time, but she is, she is incapable of not having an orgasm because of this incredible Lothario, who even when you see him face front, man, he looks like Welcome Back Cotter. It is truly disturbing, but it's 1975. Do with that what you will. Um, and, and now she is forced to confront. She is, she is forced to confront like, oh my God, I've had this experience. I did not want to have it. I did not mean to have it. Now I need to take an action. And she takes an action. And I am over the moon that the BFI had made 1,600 members who went and took this film and pushed it over the top. Uh, because ultimately, this is the best example of what lists are good for. Um, they are, they are touchstones. Uh, I think you put it beautifully at the beginning of the episode. They capture moments in time. They capture trends. Um, and if that had not happened. I probably, almost can guarantee I would not have watched this film. Uh, I'm so glad I did because now I found a new favorite film that I can kind of digest over and over. Yeah. I don't think it needs to necessarily, I don't think it necessarily needs to rise to the level of being on our own personal list for me to be like, just absurdly grateful that this did make the top of the list so that it would catch our attention and that we watch it because uh this is i think i i think in both but i think with both movies that we were watching for today's episode i'm just super grateful to have to have watched them even if the you know the ways in which they're interesting and neat and cool uh are a bit different from each other but um why don't we uh why don't we move on to talk about our second film for the day, which is Bo Trevi. This is the rhythm of my life. My life. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bo Trevi, which uh, if you noticed from my, uh, I took French immersion in school uh, pronunciation, uh, is a 1999 film by Claire Denis uh, that has loosely in, uh, loose inspirations uh, from the Herman Melville uh, book, uh, Billy Budd. Um, where do we want to start with this? This is a this is a story about the soldiers in the French Foreign Legion uh, set up at an outpost in uh, in Djibouti in Africa, and there is not a lot that happens in this uh, in in this particular uh, outpost, and I don't mean that in the sense of. Um, I think one of the interesting things about this movie and comparing it with Jean Dielman is that it is also about rhythm. It is about rhythms and patterns. And whereas uh, in Jean Dielman, obviously it's about her, the the patterns and routines that she does while she's stuck in, in, in the house. Um, and in this particular movie, it is largely about a group of soldiers who are, they're not like, like Jean Dielman, they can leave their base, um, but they are primarily stationed at this one base where they are stuck. They have, there's almost no fighting. Uh, there's no, like no military action that happens in this movie. It's just about the rhythms and routines that they get up to, uh, <clears throat> while they are sort of stationed there. They've got nothing to do. So we may as well run drills and, uh, do exercises and be incredibly bald, muscled, shirtless men. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah. yeah, that's a thing that's in this movie. Uh, it's not a war film, to your point, and I think pairing it with um, Jean Dielman, it, it's it's also very much a film that is more how it goes about it than what it's about. Because to your point, you can wrap this up very simply. This is the story about uh, an ex-sergeant in the French for- Foreign Legionnaire thing. Uh, he is no longer there, and he kind of reminisces as to the events that transpired that caused him to leave. That's it. <laughs> how the film tells that very simple story is wild. <laughs> I, I think that your analysis of in John Dillman of the her having an orgasm after the second John is the thing that causes her to like start to have those breakdowns. But it's like that's sort of a that's an implication that you kind of have to infer. Right. Um, in this movie, the thing that causes uh, uh, our our main guy, whose uh, whose name is Galoop, uh, the the thing that causes him to have a breakdown, you can very clearly identify it as. Uh, as the other soldier, uh, Sun Ten, that comes in. But what it is about Sun Ten that actually drives Galoop insane and drives him to like pick fights and send him out effectively to die is completely like it's listed, it's said that he is incredibly beautiful and he is just driven mad by his beauty. To me, I do. I register that as something I, I can have to take on face value, I guess, because I don't actually see what it is that this guy sees in well, in 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 his sort of rival slash like the object of his disdain. I guess. I think another thing with this film too is so. First of all, we should note that um, Galoop um, is played by Denny Levant. Uh, if you've ever seen him in any of his films, he's a very distinctive person. Uh, I would not say glamorously beautiful is one of his attributes, but he is very distinctive in his, his look. Um, and every other soldier is stupidly gorgeous. <laughs> like it's a weird, I, I, one of the things that was kind of going through my mind watching this film was, this this film plays with like fever dream logic, kind of the same way that like David Lynch does, uh, but certainly not not in the same kind of technique. But this is my first experience with Claire Denis, so I, I I don't know if all of her films are like this, but this film really plays with imagery. It plays with overlapping scenes. It plays with intense close ups. It plays with structure and pattern imagery in her shots. Um, and whereas Ackerman's film, the camera is kind of very a passive external observer. The camera in Beau is like a lascivious, like lech lingering, like sex camera that just <laughs> wants to luxuriate over every muscle. And, uh, again, I don't know much about this film or how it was made or how realistic it is. But is that what the French foreign legion wear when they're not in uniform? They just wear like super tight underpants and like, they all look like they're just sex workers. (laughs) And (laughs) And it's a choice. (laughs) It is absolutely a choice. And, and part like part of, part of the thing that part of the thing that sort of is it like an itch that you almost can't scratch, like something that sort of like, gets me a little bit fo- focused more on this movie than I otherwise might is the fact that, I mean, yes, they're all gorgeous, muscly, uh, bald dudes, but I don't see how Santane stands apart from, he like, does, he's, yeah. he, he, he's one of all these people. And yet, uh, all these people who are hard to distinguish from one from the other, the only person who I recognize like visually as a distinct person is of course, Danny Levant. And like, <laughs> And so you talk about him being distinct, but not beautiful, but I'm like, yeah, but he's the one that I recognize. Like at at any point, I know who that guy is. Here's like 20 other dudes that look exactly the same. Like you could just, if you want to, if you want to bang them, just go bang them. (laughs) There is a homosexual undercurrent to everything, but a lot of these people have like girlfriends um, in, in Djibouti where they're stationed. Um, and I want to talk about that in a little bit too, because I love the way that Denis, um, uses their viewing of the soldiers. 
Like these guys are in a foreign land. They are completely alien to the environment and they're doing all this weird shit. Like the way they exercise is crazy. It's, it's all like it's masked in with, with, with ballet. The score is set to Benjamin Britten. So like there, there are, are moments there, but there's also an incredible moment halfway through the film where they're walking across a, uh, this beautiful rocky landscape and Neil Young comes on. And there's a Neil Young song as they just walk and then stops. That's all. Just, hey, I wanted to have a moment. She was shooting and they were walking. And she's like, we need Neil Young here. We're going to play a Neil Young song. And then we're going to just cut to the rest of the action. But what I love is in a lot of those scenes, you have the natives of Djibouti, like watching them. Like, what the hell is, like, what is this? Like, just accentuating their kind of outsider status. Um, I bring all that up because... The film, a lot like Jean Dielman, you don't know what happened before and you don't know what happens after. But the suspicion that I had, because I had the same question of you, like, this guy's no more handsome than any of the other people in the platoon, if they're even called a platoon. I don't know. But the only thing that I could think of is because a lot of this is narrated by Galoop and he's talking about like when Suntane came in, like things changed. So I'm almost wondering if like before he was there, Maybe Galoop was a little bit more integrated with his platoon. And then just the jealousy of this guy that everybody likes. There's a crazy moment where, and I still don't understand quite why this is happening, but the next morning they're carrying one of the soldiers like crucified, like cross, like Jesus on their backs. And it's like this beautiful kind of image. I don't know why they're doing it. Uh, and then they stop and they put Santane on their shoulders. And that's when, uh, Galoop, who is segregated from them for most of the evening, he doesn't keep with them anymore. If he ever did, he sees them. And now he sees the object of his ire as being hoisted like a God, uh, like Jesus on their backs. And I think maybe he builds, he, because of all of his kind of latent homosexual feelings for his, for his, boss his the uh, chief fustian or something like that bruno uh you know like now he's seeing that this person could potentially challenge that and i don't know dude it's a weird movie <laughs> well, as i talk more and more i'm like i don't i don't know that i get everything in this movie it's a little bit more opaque to me i i, I did want to circle back real quick because i liked the and <clears throat> this is probably a good chance to actually uh shout out uh our friend dan who uh wrote up uh, a piece on this uh, movie for cinemaduel.com as part of his series on the films of uh, claire denis uh the the one on botrevi is very good and it was yeah. very helpful for me in sort of navigating um in sort of navigating this movie and some of its uh less o- overt qualities let's say um but you were talking about, you know, foreigners, uh, the, how the, how they're foreigners and how they're being watched. I, I do, uh, I, I, I re- that was something that I definitely clocked to of like, I, th- I think that the, I mean, <clears throat> if they have an, if the, the French having an outpost there, um, and sort of them having nothing to do f- feels like a sort of like, feels like a commentary on uh sort of you know french colonialist projects of like uh you know we're we're here we're doing stuff but at this point we don't even know what it is that we're doing because like most of the movie is soldiers with nothing to do um and everyone is just like why are you here um and we could talk about uh galoop having his like the fact that galoop has a quote girlfriend you know what regardless of how seriously you, you envision that relationship, the fact that fact is, I, I remember watching it towards the end. There's just a random scene with his girlfriend where they, where someone asked him, Oh, you're together. And she says, yeah. And like, right. Oh, he, he has a girlfriend and yet it is not the subject of the movie at all. Like the fact that she is, she is listed as being in a relationship with this person. And yet he is existing in his own completely separate world, I think plays into actually both the, you know, whatever, whatever the, whatever's going on with the dudes, uh, uh, aspect of it, but then also ties into, uh, the more national components of this movie. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I, a, a thousand percent agree. Uh, and also thank you, Dan, because I also read his review after watching the movie and it helped make things abundantly clear. So check out Dan's series and particularly this review. Um, but that scene that you're talking about, it's like, 
it's so nonchalant. And it, to me, it accentuates like, well, if these idiots are here, I'm just going to use them because at no time in the film does it show them in any tender moment. Uh, you know, in, in fact, in the very beginning of the film, he tries dancing with her and he touches her shoulder and she just kind of shakes his hand off and, you know, turns around to continue dancing. But she gets stuff from him. I'm, you know, that nice, the nice laundry that she's hanging, the pretty dresses and stuff that he comes to help her hang. I'm sure those were gifts from him. There's a scene where he, you know, buys something kind of reluctantly from a boy selling trinkets on the street and he puts that in her sleeping hand. Um, so I like to me that kind of plays in the, the more national kind of colonial colonialism aspects that you mentioned earlier. The other thing that I'll note too, which maybe kind of brings the homosexual undercurrent to the forefront, like he's doing that stuff because that's what's expected of him in his role. But he fondles nothing in that movie like he fondles the bracelet from Bruno, his commanding officer, you know, which probably tells you more than you need to know about where his desires truly lay um, and which ultimately kind of cause his downfall. And maybe your, your comment about the, the bracelet, um, maybe the arrival. I mean, if we're going off of what we think might be the undercurrent of the rivalry between the two men, maybe, maybe it's not so much around the, the perceived changing of, uh, affection from the men, it, from like the larger group of soldiers. Maybe it's more focused around the, uh, the chief or the guy in charge uh, yeah. specifically when I posted the, about this on Letterboxd, the, the joke that I made was that uh, not since uh, burn after reading has a final scene in a movie <laughs> made the whole thing come into relief for me. And like the, the, the rhythmic exercises, the shirtless dudes, that's hard to miss. Um, but when we finally get to the, um, you know, when we finally get to the, the, the finale, um, where he has his his dance moment and he finally gets to just no like throw off like for even if for a brief moment throw off any shade of uh suppression anything that's sort of holding him back from just being 100% completely free to be himself um that that dance sequence unlocked sort of entirely like everything it was it, it was it was ecstatic it was glorious and uh smart enough to break through a, a you know a dum-dum like me's uh uh observational skills where i was like oh this is it's a gorgeous movie and i love how this goes about what it does it it, it is literally to me like a fever dream um but i'm still left with like some weird little confounding pieces that don't fit for me like the helicopter crash for one point like where everything else seems so kind of beautifully kind of layered and interpretive like the helicopter thing is just like a bam we just need to do this so i can get this point across to you later um the other part is the inciting incident that kind of banishes satane and leaves him where the film very purposely doesn't let you know if he's alive or dead at the end um does he actually hit Galoop or was that like a interpretive thing? Like Galoop smacks him because he's going to give water to a guy that he's punishing. Um, and then there's this weird kind of balletic moment where in obscene slow-mo Satane hits Galoop across the face and then it cuts to a truck driving down as they're going to go abandon him in the desert. So was that a real hit? Did they actually strike? Cause then you have that interpretive dance where they circle each other at the beach the hit happened. He sent him out with the with the broken uh, with the broken compass, and <clears throat> then only much later do you find out that he actually survived. Uh, so that's where I get, and I guess that's where this movie is beautifully put together. Unlike Jean Dielman, I don't have a lot of desire to watch this again because now my like more logical brain starts to kind of come together. Um, because if you hit your commanding officer, I'm pretty sure in any branch of the military, American or otherwise, you'll be court-martialed just for that. <laughs> I mean, instead, I instead, what Denny Levant does <laughs> is he fucks up the guy's compass, leaves him in the middle of the desert and makes him walk his way home, knowing he gave him a tool that will never get him home and essentially leaves him to die. And he winds up getting court-martialed. <laughs> 
<laughs> for that and repatriated back to back to back to France <laughs> for disciplinary actions. Where <laughs> if he had done nothing and just walked away, he would have easily gotten rid of his problem. And I feel like that's like nitpicking in a way that I shouldn't when a film isn't as concerned about reality. But whereas Jean Dillman had me completely invested in not caring about those things, at that moment, I just kind of got like, wow, you really shoehorned that ending in quick. Like, this is a 90-minute film. It goes by quick. And it kind of felt like at that moment, we need to get to the inciting incident and get it over with so I can get you to the ending. Like, that didn't work for me. Everything except there to the end and then the dance, the, the dance aside, like, I feel like it kind of, it doesn't work for me like it like I think maybe it should. One thing I wanted to say about the ending that I really liked was um you know how in Titanic uh obviously <laughs> the film ends with, you know, Jack dying. Uh but in but in order to give the in order to sort of rest a happy ending into existence for what is an incredibly sad story. They go back to her reminiscing through the photos of like all the people that she met and uh, on the ship. And it gives you that sort of emotional happy ending that you want from a movie like that, where the, where the actual plot itself uh, didn't give it to you. And I think that what I like about uh, the ending of Beau Travai isn't just that the that dance sequence unlocks the whole thing for me, but also like chronolo- that that's that dance scene isn't chronologically the last thing that happens in the movie, because after he's done reminiscing uh, throughout the whole bit of you know when he reminisces about the, his time there, he tells the story the 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 present of him being exiled back out of the French foreign legion is with him lying on the bed, holding a gun with the, and it shows the tattoo across his chest that says, you know, serve the good cause and die um, or, and then die the implications that he's going to commit suicide um, because he's no longer has any of this stuff to do, which is uh, a bummer uh, of an ending for sure. And And it hits the, the suppressed, nature of this stuff fairly well but in order to still give us the 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 moment the the cheerful moment to go out on you have this dance sequence that is allows the movie to end on a on a joyful note um without sort of wrecking the like chronology of the whole thing or like the the broader like it's not that he has this dance moment and his life is better it's just a brief yeah absolutely yeah it's a brief glimpse into who this person really is and uh and that i like that it ends on that note as opposed to just the suicide note oh yeah no it's a great it's a great way to kind of end the movie and it's very clear this is a flashback because he's in that crazy black kind of slick outfit that he was wearing when he was around town that I also found very entertaining in the film. Um, overall, I mean, it's, it's a, I don't know where you're, we didn't talk about kind of familiarity with Claire Denis, but was this your first exposure to her stuff as well? I definitely looked up the list of Claire Denis films and realized I had not seen any of them. So yeah, this is, this, that's not being my first. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, while I will admit I wasn't as fully vested in the film, um, I think this was ranked seventh in the sound sign poll. I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure, but I, I believe it's in the top 10. Um, it definitely makes me way more interested to see more of her work because her voice is incredibly distinctive. Um, and I, I love the way that she makes the camera feel like in this case, like a leering, like, <laughs> <laughs> sex right. fiend but i love that the camera gets a personality um that is so subjective in the film so it, if if nothing else for botravai it has really made me want to check out more of her work uh which i know dan has done over on cinemaduel.com so if you want to check out some of the films i believe he is continuing at some point uh reviewing all of the films of claire denis but i think he's got three or four already done and on the site so if you're interested go and check those reviews out It's time to uh, start wrapping up this episode by talking about our recommendations segment. Chris, what do you have for us today? So uh, I took a look at what I've been watching on Letterboxd, and a lot of it is me trying to catch up with more 
recent films. I want to talk about two films, though, in particular from 2022 that I caught up on really enjoyed. The first one is um, Pearl. Ty West's follow-up to his earlier 2022 horror hit X. Uh, this was a collaboration between Ty West and Mia Goth, who plays the titular character. And it is, it is amazing. <laughs> uh, it, I have never been a huge fan of Ty West, but the amount of creativity and the amount of uh, flexibility he shows first in crafting a 1970s kind of gritty grindhouse Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of feeling film and then to move into a Douglas Sirk 1930s Wizard of Oz vibe with Pearl. I mean, this is bright colors. It's, it's, it's wide and in your face. And when it goes crazy, it goes that shit crazy. Um, it's a phenomenal piece of acting from Mia Goth. It's one of the best performances I've seen this year. Um, I don't, I highly doubt she would be nominated for an award, but man, she should because it is a powerful performance. So if you haven't seen those two films, I really recommend, even though they can be taken on their own, seeing X first to get some of the context for the things that you see in Pearl. But if I were to rank them as films, Pearl um, X was really enjoyable and fun. Pearl is incredible. Um, I was completely taken with the movie. I believe Dan also has a review of that um, on Cinema Duel. Um, I have a review for X, uh, so check those out. That's my first one. The second one, John, you and I have both seen, and we saw it, I think, relatively around the same time, and that is um, The Menu. Starring Anya Taylor Joy and Ray Fiennes, um, trying to remember who it was directed by, and I don't remember at this moment, but I believe if I look on Letterboxd real quick, it will tell me it's Mark Mylod. You, you and, didn't stop talking uh, <laughs> for me to actually help you out. You just kept talking. I was like, Mark I, Mylod, I have it here. <laughs> I have it here as well. Um, this is essentially, um, I, I, I've heard this described negatively as like a feature length Black Mirror episode. And I said, I was talking to you in passing. I've never seen Black Mirror, so I can't make that comparison, but it is very much like a Outer Limits or a Twilight Zone episode kind of stretched to feature length. It is satire playing heavily on, um, consumer culture and foodie culture and, um, how that culture kind of consumes and devours creativity in a way that may be detrimental. Yeah, it is all those things. And it's all those things pretty much on the nose. But here's what I would argue about the menu. Um, if it's a television episode stretched to feature length, I never noticed it. It never felt like it was being stretched out beyond its point. Anya Taylor-Joy is beyond being like one of the loveliest looking people I've ever seen on the face of this planet. She is phenomenal. And her chemistry with Ray Fiennes is unbelievable. And I'll go to bat for Ray Fiennes in pretty much anything. And then you have Nicholas Holt, uh, whose primary function is to make you hate him as soon as possible. Yeah. He achieves that <clears throat> admirably. He achieves it with stunning efficiency. Like really in 15 seconds. I was like, Oh, what a douchebag he is again in a way that I'm like, Nicholas Holt is not a douchebag. I think he's a great actor, but his character is horrific in this movie. Um, and just the way that they all play in this kind of weird thing that happens, uh, is fantastic. Uh, I, I, I got such a hell of a kick out, out of this movie. As a satire, as a con, like we, we talk about like, how, how does this, like, is this a, is this a horror? Is this a thriller? I, I, I read this at like my experience of watching it was that everything was so arch. That oh, this is a, this is a black comedy. This is a comedy. Yeah, this this yeah. is a hundred percent a comedy. Like yeah. this is, um, and, 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 and that's and on that level of just, we're being so over the top insane, just about every single character that, uh, I, I like the, the, the tension broke into silliness for me. And that's and, and <laughs> on that level. I had a great time. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, I, I think it's incredibly well made. I think it's incredibly well acted. I don't feel like I came away from that movie with any sort of fundamentally better understanding of the uh issues that i wanted to talk about oh but just yeah as, no no 
I won't say how other people should react to it, but I was like, this movie is dumb as hell, and but in the best possible way. Yeah, the menu is absolutely one of the ones I was going to recommend as well, but we've just talked about it. So my <laughs> other recommendation uh, for this episode is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which I finally saw. Oh. <laughs> I completely forgot that I should have recommended that with you, yes. I just want to say up front, uh, this is a Guillermo del Toro movie. This is not a Pinocchio. It is more that than it is a Pinocchio movie. So for anyone with young kids who like Pinocchio and Disney movies, please note going in that this is a movie about fascism. (laughs) And you should adjust your expectations for children's entertainment accordingly. Let's be clear, though. It's not a movie about fascism. It's a movie where fascism certainly plays a part in the film. But if you've seen if you've seen Pan's Labyrinth and how like it, it fits into the I see it fitting into the story the same way that it does in Pan's Labyrinth, which is or, or a similar story is it's, it's that it's just part of the air of the movie, right? It's, it's part the, the missing scene of, of, yeah, he has certain preoccupations and Spanish civil war, fascism. Those are things that preoccupy his mind. So that comes across here. Uh, I, I mean, continue with your pitch, but I would say, look, look, yes, all that aside, I mean, this is still in its bones, Pinocchio. <laughs> it's, 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 there is still a little wooden boy who comes to life. There is a cricket. There is an old man. <laughs> the and and of course it's uh, stop motion animation, uh, which uh, like it feels like a genre that is well suited for Del Toro's eye for detail and specificity. Um, I think that I would have said that this was a perfectly functional Del Toro movie. It it does the things you want it to do. But then the ending happens, and I remember you specifically. Um, before I saw it, you called out the ending as being particularly uh, <laughs> heartrending, and uh, my kids had to go to my wife after after the movie was over and being like, um, "Why is Daddy crying so much?" So uh, <clears throat> I, I I would I might not have brought it up, but the but the way that the movie resolves uh, left me uh, in a blubbering mess, and yeah, it, it's 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 stellar for that reason. Yeah, you uh I'll I'll quote briefly my letterbox review which is uh jaw dropping gorgeous just great until the end when it rips my heart out. They are not kidding. The ending caused me to shout out, "Oh fuck you, Guillermo del Toro." And then I just sobbed. Um and that's uh, uh, that dude can stick an ending really really well. Um even when his films don't work for me. I th- I think we both agreed um I think we both agreed about Nightmare Alley like it's fine. I don't know that I ever need to revisit his adaptation of Nightmare Alley again, um, or a couple of his other films. But when he strikes on all cylinders, I love his work. Um, and you had also talked a little bit about, I think we had talked about this offline about like comparisons to AI, which of course is also very heavily indebted to, to Pinocchio. Um, but I love Guillermo twists the message of typical Pinocchio stories. This movie is ultimately not about a wooden boy becoming a real boy. It's ultimately about understanding and embracing who you are, even if that thing is not what you were setting out to be in the first place. Right there. And the way that that folds into the end of this movie and then how it gets to the, I'm now going to rip every piece of your heart out of your body ending um, is stellar. Uh, so, I don't know if, if we're saying quite the same thing, but for me, this was a really, really good movie. And then the end is like a masterpiece in and of itself. <laughs> I like the movie and then I love the end. Yeah, I think, yes. Like the movie, love the ending. That's I think that's where, about where I land too. Yeah. <laughs> Gorgeous uh, stop motion animation, though. Holy cow, the attention to your point. The attention to detail here is stunning. I think that's probably going to do it for us today. Um, it's a uh, new year. Uh, good to get uh, back into the uh, the swing of things. Hopefully, you know, the whatever, whatever thing is happening in the universe, I hope that it's able to, you know, settle down a little bit. We can get on with our lives and uh, hopefully have a little bit more stable 2023 going forward. But in either case, uh, it was definitely good to, to reconnect. And uh, we'll definitely catch you next time. 
Yeah, to that end, we've already got the next couple of months, I think, of episodes lined up um, and expect to hear more of us, uh, literally more of us next month because we'll be reinviting Dan back onto the podcast. It'll be a trio format as we discuss the films of David Cronenberg. So until then, everyone, stay safe, be well. Uh, I hope you have a good new year. I hope whatever it is that you're looking forward to uh, works for you. Uh, But mostly, I just hope we all just stay safe and sane. So (laughs) until then, take care. Bye.